Hello and welcome to day 10 of this year's Wigtown Book Festival. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. For our final weekend, we're celebrating all things Oscar Wilde in the first of two podcasts dedicated to the famed writer, playwright and wit. Tomorrow we'll be talking to Matthew Sturgis, the author of the acclaimed biography of Oscar Wilde, and to Sally Reese, a key player in last year's Wilde weekend celebrations that took place in Enniskillen. But today we feature actor, director and author Rupert Everett for a very special chat with Wigtown favourite Lee Randall. In his highly anticipated third memoir, Rupert Everett tells the story of how he set out to make a film of Oscar Wilde's last days and how that 10-year quest almost destroyed him and everyone else. Travelling across Europe for the film, he weaves in extraordinary tales from his past, remembering wild times, freak encounters and lost friends. Unflinchingly honest and hugely entertaining, To the End of the World offers a unique insight into the snakes and ladders of filmmaking. It's also a soulful and thought-provoking autobiography from one of our best-loved and most talented actors and writers. Lee Randall chatted to him about his relationship to Wilde, as well as the development of his film The Happy Prince. Hello, Rupert. Thank you for joining us on the Wigtown Book Festival podcast to talk about To the Ends of the World, Travels with Oscar Wilde. It's really great to be talking to you. I'm, I'm always intrigued about which things we discover in childhood that become our companions throughout the rest of our lives. Mm. And for you, that's Oscar Wilde, because your mother kicked off your love of him, didn't she, with reading you The Happy Prince? She did. Uh, when I was about five or six years old, uh, she read me all the fairy stories of Oscar Wilde. And uh, The Happy Prince is the one I remember particularly, uh, because uh, I can remember my mum saying those uh, famous lines, swallow, swallow, little swallow, you tell me of marvellous things. And um, I remember it as just a kind of idyllic part of my life, really. I don't think uh, my mum really understood who Oscar Wilde was or what he stood for. And we certainly didn't really understand either of us, I think, a lot about the book either. The mystery of uh, suffering uh, was something that even though we were both Catholics, I think uh, we thought was rather flighty stuff. (laughs) And the weird thing was, uh, I loved those stories. Uh, But after that, really, I left Oscar Wilde a little bit. Uh, And even when uh, I was at drama school, I wasn't really uh, that keen on Oscar Wilde. We had a term at drama school when we did Wild, and I don't think any of us were particularly uh, excited by it, really. It was only much later uh, that I, I began to become uh, interested in him. And uh, again, that, that, in a way, just by chance, I, I played um, The Importance of Being Earnest in, in Paris at the Théâtre du Chaillot in French, and uh, it was a great success for me. It was a perfect, very good fit for me as an actor, uh, doing that kind of dialogue. And I, I, I think uh, it, that was really when it started uh, being something uh, important for me. And then I, I began to learn more and more about Wilde himself. Little by little, uh, my interest got, got more intense. There's a school of thought that says that work needs to stand on its own without us knowing anything about the author's life or the artist's life. And while I accept the truth of that, I also think with Wilde, the two become so enmeshed, I have a lot of trouble myself pulling them apart. Is that the same for you? I agree. I think uh, Wilde's an exception to that rule. But, But in a way, I'm not sure, because I think reading any book thoroughly and deeply uh, it's rather like going to a seance. Uh, that person who wrote it is kind of conjured up for you in a way. There, there are lots of writers that uh, 
I think about. You know, even reading uh, English writers like Graham Greene, you begin to wonder about the person who's writing it, and that's novels. But I agree with you, Wilde is very, very particular, uh, because you feel him in all the characters so so strongly. I mean, in Dorian Gray, for example, he's both of the of the of the uh, the two characters around Dorian. He's the artist Basil Horwood, and he's also Lord Henry Wotton. And uh, in the plays, in the Ideal Husband, he's all the characters really. And similarly, in uh, um, the importance of being earnest. So I agree with you. I think he's very, very present. And he and his life is and his work together is the sum total of his uh, artistic contribution. I think. Do you ever have the urge to travel back in time, grab him by those velvet lapels and say, don't sue, don't sue, whatever you do, don't sue? Well, not really. Um, I feel a little bit, bit like um, Richard Attenborough um, and in the wildlife documentaries. I think you have to leave nature to itself. And I think if he hadn't sued, none of this would have happened. Because I think at that point, probably the plays and the writing would have, would have disappeared slightly. Uh, as it is, they're, they're all some of the most famous texts in the world. But I wonder if, without the tragedy of Wilde around them, whether they would have uh, uh, resonated so much. Certainly the plays, you know, there were a lot of great pot-boiling melodramas at the end of the 19th century. And with the exception of maybe um, The Importance of Being Earnest, which really is a, a work of kind of perfection in a way, uh, I think, and the others, I think they're wonderful plays, but there are a lot of other wonderful plays that have got forgotten. So I think I, I wouldn't necessarily have told him don't sue, but it would have been fascinating to have seen him suing. That's an intriguing idea. You've linked him to the Christ figure and talk about him being right there, if not the person who began gay visibility, certainly at that start of the gay rights movement. Can I get you to talk to our audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think the thing uh, for me, which is most intriguing about him, uh, Wilde really essentially was the first out homosexual in modern history. In that, because he was famous still when he lived in Paris, or at least infamous, uh, you could look at him on the street and be a complete stranger and you could say, that is a homosexual. Finally, I've seen one. Uh, because otherwise, before that, it had just been a whisper a whispered thing or or a thing that sometimes went to court or or in the 1830s men put in the pillory uh, and you could throw things at them but you didn't really see it in action uh, and I think once there was a face to it uh, the road to liberation was just a, a matter of time uh, and I think Wilde saw that himself he said the, the road to liberation would be long and smeared with the blood of martyrs so I think he saw his role uh, very much like that. And I think talking of, you know, don't sue or sue, I think when he was sitting in that room in the Cadogan Hotel uh, with one person saying, go, leave now, go uh, go to France, and someone else saying, stay and face the music, he must have been weighing up in a way what would make him immortal. So he is a Christ figure in a, in a, in a very real way, I think. That's interesting. You also talk about the relationship with Robbie Ross. And I'm intrigued because you say that you think Robbie was the real one. I think Robbie was the one, yes. And that uh, the relationship with uh, Lord Alfred Douglas was really an act of snobbery. And, uh, you know, Wilde was a tremendous snob. And, uh, you know, when he got to England, he literally went down on all fours and changed everything about himself. It's quite difficult for us to imagine the relationship between the Irish and the English uh, today 
because, uh, you know, things have changed a lot. But in those days, being Irish to kind of the English blue-blooded world was more or less beneath contempt. So for him, people write about him um, arriving in Oxford uh, and uh, changing his voice, uh, changing his, the way he talked. He reinvented himself completely for the English, which, of course, makes the tragedy even more poignant in a way. But the zenith of his, uh, his, his rise was really meeting Lord Alfred Douglas. You know, uh, he, was, he had three West End plays running consecutively. The, Duke of, the Prince of Wales was uh, in the box. Uh, he was going out with the son of a Marquis on letter writing terms with the Marchioness and all the family. Suddenly he was right in there. And uh, I think uh, for him, the love affair was sheer snobbery from his point of view. Now you played wild originally in the David Hare plays of Judas Kiss. That's right. And, um, they, I, I've had other actors and actresses say to me, well, as soon as I put on the shoes, I was in the character. You didn't just put on shoes, you put on a padded suit and an enormous prosthetic genitalia. Mm -hmm. What made you decide that the genitalia was appropriate? Well, I just always had this idea of Wild as a big elephantine, big footed, big handed, uh, big cocked, man. I never quite have managed to buy the idea that Wilde uh, in all Bose's homosexual trysts uh, sat and watched. I think that's a bit lame. Who sits and watches? I mean, nobody very much. I think he was right in there. And I like to think of him as being right in there with, you know, gigantic, unmanageable dick. They must have loved that in the first row. Well, I mean, the point was, uh, when, I, when I first came up with this cock, it was too, it took over. I could see people in the first three rows of the theatre thinking, my God, I had no idea Rupert Everett was so well hung. <laughs> and, and it kind of took over, so I had to have it cut down to size a bit. Uh, yes, it, was, it, it definitely helped my performance anyway. And, and then you, did you then use exactly the same stuff for the film? Because in yes. the film, you are much bigger than you are in real life. Yeah, and in the play. No, I, was, uh, I, I wore the same suit in the film. So, listen, you have said that the nature of your business is that everything's a potential train crash. But filming involves more crashes than most, especially when I was reading the book. It's that, that classic phrase, development hell. You had money, you didn't have money. The budget was balanced, the budget wasn't balanced. Here you are, you're working on something for a decade, something that's a labor of love. How did you keep your enthusiasm up? How did you keep going? Um, well, I don't know, really. Uh, it's a mystery to me, even, because I'm not, I wasn't uh, historically a particularly tenacious person. Uh, I'm, I'm somebody, I think, who actually gives up quite early. So it's, uh, it's been a mystery to me. I think probably, you know, the first couple of years is, is all right. Anyone can do. Uh, um, it's up and down and in and out. And, uh, and after that, you are quite often demoralized to the point of giving up. But then something happens. We're quite superstitious in show business. And uh, a lot works on uh, the, the fuel of enthusiasm. So something good happens suddenly and you think, oh, well, that's a sign. I, I must keep going. And really, every time I was just about to give up, that's what happened. Um, one most notable example was um, I really was about five years in, about to you know call it a day and forget about it. And then suddenly one day the telephone rang and it was Merlin Holland, the grandson of Oscar Wilde, calling yeah. me out of the blue. And that really I did see as uh, some kind of uh, sign from Oscar Wilde that I wasn't to give up. Yeah. And from then on, really, um, I, I, I never did. 
What was it like meeting him? Was he lovely? It was amazing. It was like meeting Oscar, really. He looks very like Oscar. He's big like Oscar. He has a kind of uh, melodious voice like Oscar. Uh, very intelligent, very good writer like Oscar. Uh, very funny, um, more serious, more caring, probably less flippant than Oscar. Um, but uh, but a, been a he's been a great, great friend to me all the way through. And I think that was um, uh, coming across him was really one of the most important things that happened to me during the filming. Pre -filming. Well, not least because he told you a story about your aunt. I mean, it turns out you're you're, there's a whole family connection. Can you tell that story? Yes, not exactly. One of the things that was incredible about it was that I suddenly remembered something that I'd forgotten really for years, which was my family. My parents used to say that my wayward aunt, who was called Aunt Peter, used to know Oscar Wilde. And when I was old enough to know that this was a physical impossibility, it was just another of those things that uh, I infuriated me about my family, who I thought was so out of touch. And I remember my mum saying to me once, oh, it's another of the things we got wrong, is it? And uh, I really hadn't thought about it for years since then until meeting Merlin. And I, and I just suddenly thought about it. And I said to him, uh, does the name Peter Everett mean anything to you? And literally, I'm, I'm not uh, making it up, he went white. And he said, oh, well, Peter Everett is the reason I saw my father alive for the last time. And uh, so uh, the earth really did stand still then. And it transpired that Peter, my aunt, had been friend with, friends with Merlin's mother. They both were in the world of makeup. Uh, they, uh, they both worked at Revlon. My aunt had been having dinner with uh, Merlin's mother uh, and Merlin's father, Wilde's son was in hospital dying and uh, Merlin had been called down from Oxford and uh, he arrived at their flat to find my aunt and his mother said go and put Peter in a taxi uh, and uh, he took Peter down to the road to the street and got it hailed a taxi and instead of getting in my aunt thrust a 10 pound note into his hands and said go and see your father now and so he got in the taxi and went to see his dad uh, which is about 11 o'clock at night. And then the dad died straight afterwards. So he would never have seen him again if it hadn't been for Peter. So that was an amazing story too. My six degrees of separation. Well, exactly. It's such an amazing coincidence. Yeah. So even though you had an amazing cast for this film, it's very clear to me from the, the text that getting Colin Firth on board was vitally important to help ensure that the money kept in place. I mean... That's the impression I have from reading the book. Absolutely. Um, the thing was that uh, during the 10-year the process, Colin Starr had risen uh, quite dramatically. And uh, I had uh, continued going around financiers around Europe saying, yes, we got Colin Firth. Colin was on the phone to me today saying, when are we getting started, blah, 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 which he wasn't. And um, little by little, the whole production came, to, came down to whether Colin was going to show up and uh, which is a big responsibility for somebody uh, to take on and you know we're not family or, or best best friends uh, but I must say Colin uh, behaved incredibly and stuck by me because if he hadn't been able to do it the film would have just collapsed so I'll, I'll always remain very indebted to him. And he ended up foregoing his fee as well didn't he? And then on top of all that I had to take fleece him of his fee so in the end he did the film for nothing yeah. which was amazing, really amazing. It is amazing. Do you know, something I've read 
your novels, I've read your memoirs, and I've read the headlines. And there's a great sense about you that it's a, there's a feud, there's always a feud. There's, but in fact, you have a tremendous capacity for friendship that, that really comes through you. You talk about your lunches with Philip Prowse that still, and having, you know, repaired the friendship with Colin, look at what's come out of it. And you, in the book, you talk about visiting the elderly mother of a friend of yours who passed away many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think it's because as we get older, we, I hate the idea that we get older and wiser or older and mellower, but do you think it's a function of age or do you think this is something that people just overlook about you generally? I think I've always had uh, been quite friendly and I've always uh, kept up with people. I've, I've moved abroad a lot and moved around because I think I inherited a, uh, that kind of restlessness from my kind of empire ruling family uh, because they were always, you know, posted from one place to another and we spent our childhoods moving and I think you get that imprinted on you. But the thing is, if that does happen to you, uh, you, you, it's quite easy to lose touch with people. And, uh, and I think even when I was young, I was always staying in touch uh, with people uh, rather than them staying in touch with me, actually, uh, because I was always on the move. And yes, I've had feuds with everybody. I mean, I've fallen out with a lot of people and back in. Uh, but I don't think I have any more than anybody else, in a way. I wanted to ask you also, the, the phenomenon of directing yourself. So when you're doing a scene, for example, this might sound like a mad question, but when you're doing a scene and you're trying to be in the moment, are you ever also listening to either your own delivery or your co-star's delivery and thinking, no, we're going to have to reshoot this or no, this isn't working? Are you, are you having a kind of a split personality? Um, I think in a way you have a split personality. I, I, I definitely felt I had eyes in the back of my head when I was directing. and. But mostly what happened is sometimes I, everyone else really was so good. I didn't really have to direct anyone else in the, in the film. Um, there was nobody who wasn't, uh, didn't know exactly what they were doing. Uh, and so that wasn't really uh, an issue I had. There wasn't anyone's performance I had to try and draw out. Um, the person who probably did worst in a way, I'm, I mean, looking at once I looked at the film later, I was the one who I had to help more in the, the post-production. And the thing that I loved about working with me was that I cared enough about my performance to really go through it with a tooth comb once I got to the editing stage. And <clears throat> I could see some of the things I just hadn't managed to achieve in my acting, probably because I was looking out the back of my head and at something else that was going on. But I knew what I did know was what I was trying to achieve and then you can kind of jig the editing around so that you can make that achievement happen. So now I think the only piece of advice I would ever give any actor is try to make the director really, really like you. Because if the director really, really likes you, he'll go into your material, which is quite hard work and quite time consuming, and draw all the threads of the things you, you tried to do but didn't quite pull off. Uh, he can draw them out. He can give them better timing. He can do so many things with them. And that's what I did with myself. So it sounds like it was a complicated edit. No, it wasn't so much complicated. It was just, I, it was very loving on my behalf to myself. And I just, I cared, you know, I cared so much about my performance that I, I was prepared to take that time. I've made enemies with a lot of directors and I can see what happens is because the editor comes up with a, a cut for a performance that's, that's sometimes based on lots of other things apart from the acting. 
uh, it could be based on whether the, the, the same bird is flying across um, in the background of the two shots and it matches. Uh, and sometimes all of us actors go to films often and say, God, that wasn't my best bit. Do you remember that bit when I did this? And they go, well, yes, I remember. Why would they have that? And it's because they don't really care. If they don't care about you, they think, oh, what a nightmare he was, uh, then they don't bother to look deeper into your performance. And how different is directing film from directing drama, live drama, because you've done both? Live drama is much harder. Um, I thought, and especially being in the live drama uh, was even harder because I had certain actors who really slowed down once we uh, got onto the stage. And I would, I could hardly move from apoplexy, interior, I'd say, hurry up, hurry up, as soon as my head was turned upstage from the audience. Uh, because for me, uh, pace is uh, very important. Um, another thing that was it sounded like a joy, a joyful part of the exercise of making the movie was location scouting. Yeah, um, I love it. And most especially, I mean, the Paris section in the book is beautiful because it conjures up so much of your personal past history. But the Naples section, I, it's when you really, really came to grips with Wilde, isn't it? When you really understood what he was up against, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, location-wise, uh, going to Naples was my first kind of move. Uh, I know the first thing I did was I took the, the Normandy ferry from New Haven to Dieppe, uh, which was an amazing trip too. And uh, I went to, I stayed in Dieppe uh, in a hotel, and then I went for the, my first ever trip was to Berneval, which was the place that Wilde went uh, when he first, after, after being in Dieppe. And I remember finding Berneval and driving down into it and sitting on this wall, which was uh, actually the wall of the Hotel des Plages, uh, where it wasn't actually where he lived. It was, uh, it was the hotel that was built by the guy, the same guy who built the other hotel. Uh, anyway, that was a kind of magical moment. And walking down to the beach was a magical moment. And then discovering the church on the hill, uh, which was called Notre Dame de Liest. And Wild writes a very funny letter about it saying I go there every day on a pilgrimage uh, it takes all of three minutes to get to it and just as many to get back and um, I walked up to it walking up to it was really when I had a, a great revelation about him because it didn't take three minutes and it was a big walk and I realized what he was really doing on that walk um, was trying to keep going you know like we do when we're very depressed so I must do something I must you know uh, keep moving and, and I got a picture of him very clearly uh, incredible loneliness just uh, sitting in this little village bedsit you know the person who'd been the life and soul of the cafe royal reduced to a you know country bumpkin with no future and um, so little by little on those location visits I really developed my understanding of, of wild and then the next trip I went to was Naples and uh, Naples for me personally also was uh, just a, a, a life-changing uh, moment because I fell in love with the city uh, and Posilipo and all around. And um, tracking wild through Naples uh, was, uh, was also an amazing journey for me too. And finding Wilde's house in Naples and the person who lived there became becoming such a friend of mine. Everything about that side of things was, was just very exciting. And what do you think Naples meant to Wilde himself? Well, for, to Wilde, it was really the end of the road. It didn't have the glamour that it has for us. I mean, it was, a, it was good for sex. Uh, uh, in Wilde's day. Him and Bosey made the most, most of that. But it was a kind of dead-end place. It was, uh, it had, 
what's weird about it then, it was really in the beginning, it, it had had its death throes. Unification of Italy was uh, terrible for Naples. You know, Naples had been the most sophisticated place in Europe and uh, unification had robbed it of everything. They the North had taken everything from Naples. And so by the time Wilde got there in uh, 97, it was rather like, um, you know, like Venice when Byron got there, which was also, you know, dilapidated, fallen to pieces, dead. And I think it felt very dead to him. I remember there's one part when he says um, he considers suicide jumping off the cliff at the Cap Posilipo. And uh, someone says to him, why didn't you do it? And he says, I just couldn't bear to be here for the afterlife with all that terrible food. Um, so, uh, you know, it wasn't a great, wasn't a romantic place like it was for me. So having gone through all this heartache and all the agita of getting the film financed and made, a lot of people would want to stop, but I've read that you would actually like to direct more films and more television. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's like having a baby, you know, you uh, and a bad pregnancy where you have to put your feet up for three months. Um, I think uh, once you've had the baby, you immediately want to have another one. So uh, I am making another film uh, next year and um, and writing a lot more and, you know, hoping to keep going. And will you star in this new movie as well? I'm in it, but not as a star. It's about me, funnily enough, but uh, uh, I'm I'm obviously too old to, to I'm play. It's about me when I was 17. Right, you're too old to play you. Just about too old to play me. Not really. <laughs> and just in, in conclusion, uh, in addition to reading this book, which I recommend everyone do, adult material started on Channel 4. And so what I'm hoping is that you'll tell us just a tiny bit about it. Adult material is um, an amazing, uh, very shocking series written by a lady called Lucy, who's a wonderful, one of our best writers of, of plays and uh TV and it's about the pornography business. And I am a pornography producer uh, who has been a pornography actor back in the day. I'm, I think I was Best Bottom 1983. And uh, I've kind of lived the high life on, you know, cocaine and uh, vodka, making porn through the 80s and 90s, which was a, a great business, by the way, uh, not like it is now. Um, and uh, gradually getting kind of just kind of worn away on the edges uh, so that when the story starts which is a really this, uh, it starts with a mad porno star female one who who has an accident at work and uh, and then uh, all hell kind of break, breaks loose and it's about the meltdown uh, that happens and uh, I am really the villain of the piece although in one sense I'm not a villain really I, I'm just I've just been worn down by everything and uh, my, my, my judgment has gone kind of to the, to the just gone wonky. My, my viewfinder has gone wonky. Uh, the colors gone wonky on my screen. I'm just an old, uh, you know, drunken, rattled person who is responsible for something bad happening without really quite know. He does know what's happened, but he hasn't, uh, he hasn't managed to, to deal with it or, um, control it. So it's a great uh, series. Uh, Hayley Squires is a star. She's a porno star in the, in the, in the series. She's wonderful. And uh, so is Phil Daniels. Everybody's uh, Julian. They're great actors in it all over. Tremendous. Thank you so much for joining us at the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. Thank you very much.
many thanks to Rupert Everett uh, to the end of the world is published on 8th October so this has been a really special little sneak preview and it will be available from all good independent booksellers thanks of course again also to the brilliant Lee Randall well that's it for today's episode many thanks for joining us we hope you'll join us again tomorrow for the final episode from this year's festival and if you haven't caught up with our other episodes from this year you can find them all on SoundCloud Apple Podcasts Stitcher Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts thank you so much for tuning in today as always take good care of yourselves bye bye for now